This is part one of a three-part podcast. Hi, this is Mark. There are a lot of reasons to get angry these days, but I prefer to focus on the positive things that we each can do to make this world a better place. The book Building a Better World in Your Backyard, Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys, is a great resource for just that. Instead of throwing my arms up in frustration at governments or big corporations, there's a list of ideas that we each can tackle to affect change. Information about this book and other resources can be found at permies.com. All right. Here I am with Alan Booker, and uh, uh, we've got a, we've got a bunch of different stuff that needs to be covered because it's been a long time. We've been too long out of the the podcast world. There's just a bunch of stuff to push in here, and so um, at the top of the list, and so I made a I made a lovely list uh, of of things. And Alan and I kind of added to this list a little bit, but first of the first thing on the list, the Garden Master Course 2023. Um, Starts in less than a month. And, um, uh, so by the time people hear this podcast, they probably just have a couple of weeks maybe to get signed up if they want. Uh, but Helen has said that this one will be 40% better than the last one. And Alan, you attended the last one. Um, yeah. and, and we recorded the last one. We, we've taken the recording of the last one and we, uh, did a Kickstarter to have it edited. The editing is in progress now. I think that the first, uh, bit, which I think it was, uh, Sunday night before it got started, I think that that first bit is going to be, uh, up on Monday and, um, and then hopefully we'll get a, a new portion of each of the classes every day for the next, you know, until the whole class is out. And it was a one-week course. But you attended it, and uh, somewhere in the video I saw you speaking highly of what you have, uh, what you were there observing. Um, it was okay then? You, you, you thought it was all right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Ellen, yeah. I mean, I think probably a lot of people who are listening to the podcast now at least have you know, have, have some idea of who Helen is, um, and her background. But, you know, you're talking about someone who has 40 years of hands on, um, experience and practice and not, and, and doing so at a very high level. It is actually thinking about applying, you know, data, data gathering and analysis to what she is doing in a variety of circumstances. So the class is not just a bunch of abstract theoretical. She brings in a huge amount of data about, you know, things that she has done where she has metriced over many years. Um, and um, that's very, very valuable. It, um, it really starts to ground in, into, you know, quantitatively what she's doing and what kind of yield she's able to produce and what kind of quality of food she's able to produce and so forth. So, uh, and on the 40% better, yeah, I, I can absolutely, the, the, the garden master course in 2022 was the first time she had taught a garden master course. You know, she taught 17, 18 master gardener courses. But then when she decided to come up, you know, to, to create and, and teach this garden master course, she, you know, put aside a lot of the master gardener curriculum and reformulated all of it 
in a whole new way, thinking about ecological growing, taking out a lot of the things that are uh, toxic gick based from Master Gardener and moving over to an or- a fully organic ecological way of growing. And so 2022 was her first presentation of that. And I, I know anytime you teach a class like that for the first time, you, you get done with it and you scratch your head and go, Oh, okay. Now that I've done it once, um, I, I know that, uh, there's things I want to do differently and improve it. So, um, I, I, and then, so I'm, I'm guessing that she's, uh, that's exactly what's happened and that she's going to come back and she's like, yeah, we can, we can, we're going to improve it massively for the 2023 course. I, I, I attended her very first, um, master gardener course that she taught and I attended her very last one. And, um, I thought that they were indeed different. And I can tell you that you, I, the, one of the things I felt was really different is that I felt like in the last one that she taught, she seemed much more stressed out. And, um, you, I could sense the, the frustration that she was feeling as she was teaching the, the last course of trying to navigate the leash that was put on her. And, um, uh, the leash was there at the beginning, but you know, they hadn't, I don't know, tightened the leash as much, let's say. And so, and basically what I'm talking about is, is that of course the master gardener program is taught by extension offices, which are extensions of, uh, state universities that are the, you know, ag college for that state. And, and I'm going to say, I believe it is my, my opinion that the ag college for every state is deeply influenced by ChemAg. Um, there's going to be a lot of grants, uh, and a lot of funds coming in. And, uh, and with those funds, there's always strings attached. And I think that those strings reach all the way down to the master gardener training. But I know that, um, in the first, uh, master gardener course that I took, that, that part of the instruction was, is that, um, when helping people with their horticultural questions, that if you give an organic solution, you have to give equal time to a non-organic solution. Um, but if you give a non-organic solution, you don't have to give equal time to an organic solution. So all I can say is that on her last Master Gardener course, because she taught 17 years, and, and there were many years where she taught multiple Master Gardener courses, and there were several advanced Master Gardener courses, one of which I took. Um, and, uh, I mean, wow, the, the ChemAg stuff is pretty intense. There's a lot of it. And uh, you, you learn a lot about ChemAg, which from an organic perspective, or organic or better, um, you kind of you also get to learn about the MSDS, the toxicity, and and I know that when I went into the Master Gardener program, I was more of an IPM person. Like you know, th- there's uh, there might be a, a 
a limited amount of, of uh, pesticides that are going to be acceptable. And when I finished the Master Gardener program, I felt like it's never worth the trade-off. Never. Um, and, For those who, uh, those who don't recognize the acronym, IPM is Integrated Pest Management, which is a much more holistic approach to managing um, pest problems that uh, enables you to use a lot less toxic um, material. Right. And I, I finished with the idea of like I, IPM is also awful. It's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, I, anyway, I could, I, I could, I could fill 10 hours complaining about these things, but instead I'm going to just step back and I'm going to say, I would, I would say that, uh, yes, that's why I said IPM uses less toxic. Material, but no, what most, your your definition most is IPMs, most IPM approaches still do use a certain amount of toxic um, get in their the way that they are deployed. Yes, yes, yes. I guess what I'm trying to say is is that I, the the leash was getting to be quite strong and spooky. So, and yeah, so let, let me give a quick story that may address this. I've had people ask me if I took the um, master gardener course. And my answer is no. I actually did investigate it a good number of years ago and I went and talked to the instructors and I asked one very specific question. Um, because for those who aren't familiar with it, not the, the becoming a master gardener, when you sign the little document that says, I'm, I want to take this course, you are committing to a certain number of hours of basically helping people in the community with their questions. Um, part of the reason that the Master Gardener program was created was because you had all these ag agents who were trying to focus on the farmers and get them to implement all this chem-ag stuff. They kept on getting questions from smaller producers and gardeners, and they were like, well, we need, we basically need some folks to, to allow us to not have to spend our time on that. And so they created this Master Gardener program, the idea being that the Master Gardeners would answer most of those questions so that the ag agents could actually deal with the larger farms. And so when you sign the little thing that says, I want to sign up for the course, you commit to a certain number of hours on the phone of asking these questions, of answering questions. Right. And so... I asked, I said, if I sign up for this, if I'm understanding correctly, uh, if somebody calls and is talking about growing a garden to feed their family, including their small children, then I have to advocate for the use of, and I listed about five or six different toxic chemicals that uh, I know um, are harmful to develop, developing children. And I said, it, it, and I said, here, I actually brought with me the scientific studies that showed that these chemicals were highly harmful to developing children. And I said, so you're telling me that even though I have science that is peer reviewed and published in world class journals saying that my advocacy of this chemical is 
harming their child's health, that I am required to advocate for it as a side effect of being a master gardener. And they hemmed and hawed for a moment, and they finally had to say yes. Yeah, yeah. And I said, therefore, for me personally, that's a non-starter. I will not get on the telephone to a person who is trying to grow healthy food to feed their children and advocate for them to use chemicals that systemically um, accrue in the meristems of the plants and therefore are eaten. Alan? Yes. Remember, we're gonna we're gonna build good things rather than being right. angry at bad guys. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm, I'm basically just telling the story to kind of yeah. like say there is this very there's there's a big distinction between what Helen is now doing with the Garden Master Course. Uh, I think that was the that was the that I was telling as a story to illustrate why I think it was that Helen was getting a little frustrated with teaching under the requirements of the Master Gardener program and why she is now moving forward to something that I can fully advocate. I I can see exactly what Helen is doing and teaching and going, yes, that is the way to grow nutrient-dense real food that I absolutely would recommend to everybody to be able to feed to their family. Now, I believe, my understanding from many, many conversations with Helen, I believe that she has never used any of that stuff. Never. Not once. And uh, the whole time that she was the extension agent in Missoula, uh, she simultaneously managed her own farm um, uh, where uh, it was, you know, way beyond organic. And, uh, and then she had like a, a, a farm stand at the Saturday market in Missoula in the, pri- in the prime location, the number one spot. And, uh, oh man, these enormous, beautiful peppers. I think, uh, uh, that's what everybody takes the most pictures of is her and her peppers. But, um, uh, just had these, these beautiful, beautiful crops that she grew without using any of that crap. Um, and of course she's an excellent teacher. Um, she is, uh, she is a very full of life person. Getting back to what I was trying to say, your, everything you said is absolutely 100% correct. And when I took the first master gardener course from her, she was required to teach stuff about the herbicides and pesticides and whatnot, but she focused 90% of our education on the MSDS. <laughs> and so we got to learn how toxic each of these things were. And, and that, I think, I think that if people understood how toxic these materials were, I think that there wouldn't even be 5% of the use of these materials. And, um, the, and now I can, I can get going on the laws and how they've shirked the laws and they really ought to be sued into oblivion because they're violating laws. But uh, I'm going to set that aside. The, the point I want to make is, is that, and when I took that master gardener class, I walked in 
uh, thinking that I knew 99% of what there was to know about gardening. And um, I was very humbled, and I walked out thinking that I don't even know 1% of what there is to know about gardening. And so the, the experience was really good. The last class that she taught as a, a for master gardening, I could it just it just looked like it it I I had the sensation that she was tied down and and uh she had things put into her brain and uh it was she was made into kind of this, you know, machine of the system and she was still fighting it. But they had seven leashes on her and um and shock cords and all kinds of other things. I mean it was it was bizarre to so somebody would ask a question and you could see her trying to find a way to answer it and keep her job. <laughs> it was because uh, I because I, what I did it then when I, when I attended her last class, I'd already been, you know, well into the permaculture stuff and I've come so far. And, uh, and I, I, I knew why she was being so squirmy with that answer. And then I remember a gal sitting next to me said, why did she say that? And I said, because she's required to by law, not, maybe not by law, but, but by the chem company, you know, the, the chem companies are influencing this course. And she's trying to find a way to say something that is true and at the same time within her value set and, you know, also limited by what she's allowed to say, mm-hmm. um, by her employer's influencers. And so it was sad to see that such a, so the course was better and worse. Now, she doesn't have all those leashes. So, and then on top of that, she doesn't have to talk about any of that Camag shit at all. That's the master, that's the, that's the garden master course that, that you attended, sir. And, yeah. and all of that stuff was replaced with, cause she used to be an intern for Fukuoka. So she could talk about that. Uh, she could talk about all of her work to try to continue with what Fukuoka started, her own experiments in like um, a food forest, commercial food forest, commercial uh, market gardens, uh, um, you know, organic farms. I could go on and on and on and on. All right. All, all I'm trying to say is <laughs> she's going to teach the garden master course again. She says it's going to be 40% better than last year. And anybody listening to this right now, you've, you know, you don't have much time to buy a ticket if you're going to do it. At the same time, the 2022 course is going, we, we took video of it. I want to, I want to say a whiny personal thing. I want to get something off of my personal chest. And that is that, uh, I miss making podcasts, but I just took on too much over the summer. And on top of that, I think part of my taking on too much made me sick. And, um, uh, in fact, Alan, you were here like right in the middle of the PDJ. I got so sick. I had to go to the hospital. And so, um, uh, I, you know, I think I'm, I've got a better grip on my ailments and whatnot. But the thing is, is that I was, I, I, I went this huge chunk of time, six months without putting out a podcast, but we did do two Kickstarters. And I gotta say, 
that I think that the final product for both of these Kickstarters is great. We also put on six weeks of summer events. Uh, and, um, there was a fall event, although it was not hosted by me, which was, is just a delightful thing. Um, uh, and, uh, I'm trying to train new VAs and, and get more stuff done on and on and on and on. I just, I, I just am spreading myself a little too thin. That's, and that's, and the, and the podcast, uh, gave away, gave way to that. Um, uh, it has, however, been a very exciting year. I mean, we're, this is December when we're recording this. It's, it's been a very exciting year for me, but, but I, all right. So the second Kickstarter of this year was for the recording of the 2022 Garden Master course, which you attended. So, and, and I attended the full thing too. So both of us asked obnoxious questions. Well, I asked obnoxious questions. You, of course, asked very reasonable and well-put questions. Uh, and uh, But I think the two of us influenced the course deeply. And, uh, and it's, all, it's all there. And it's been edited, so it's a little tighter. Um, it, it's, it's been – so anything that was redundant or, you know, whatever – we, I think about 10 per, it's about 10% shorter for the recorded version. And on top of that, Andreas has added animations to certain points to make it clearer. Nice. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of, it's, it's a very polished thing. So, so while her course this year is going to be 40% better, it's a different flavor than all of this other editing that's, that's happened to the course from last year. And I would like to say that even though I was at the course live and participated and helped teach a little bit, I backed the Kickstarter because I wanted access to the video recordings. Oh, yeah. I, I do think that this is something where, I mean, it's, it's, it's got those things in it that made it so that after reading more than a hundred gardening books, and then I walked into the course thinking I knew 99% of what there was to know about gardening. And then coming out the other end, realizing I don't even know 1% of what there is to know about gardening. I wish I could have had video of that to replay it like a dozen times. Because yeah, you get somebody that's thinking about this at Helen's level, what you find is if you come in and you watch her talk about something as a beginner, you take away one strata of information. Then you go out and you practice for a while and you come back and you watch it again and you're like, ah, because now your brain is ready to process things that you weren't ready to process the first time. So now you mine a whole other level out of what she's saying, watching exactly the same thing. And you come back again after another couple of years and you watch it, you're like, oh, well now there's a whole, even a whole nother. So somebody who's been doing it for 40 years, sometimes just there's so much richness in, you know, that many hours worth of material that each time you come back to it, you're going to mine out something different. So I, I agree. Yes. Yes. To me, the big thing was, is I learned over the years that um, this woman is an excellent teacher. Her knowledge set is very deep um very rich and um it it is and my feeling is it is a pity 
that she isn't still teaching the master gardener courses, of course, you know, without the, the leashes and stuff. And so it took four years of my harassing her to put on this course and, uh, and, and, and basically badgering her into doing it. <laughs> and so we finally got her to do it. And then we recorded it. I'm so glad we recorded it. Um, and, uh, I am, I mean, what a delicious thing. Uh, I think it's such a miracle that she, she pulled it off, that she did it. She taught this course and that we recorded it. It's mm-hmm. there. It exists. It was a lot of work to get it to exist. Um, and yet here we are. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm giddy with myself that we got it done. And so I did not, there's a lot of podcasts I did not record for this six month span of time, but damn it, we got this done. And it's like, it was a lot of work, but there it is at the, at the same time, we also got the, um, the free heat movie out. Have have you seen the free heat movie? Yes. Oh, good. And you found it to be wonderful and delightful and awesome in every way? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> okay. There's a lot of really good information in there. I think that, that um, as you've moved forward with the newer uh, Rocket Mass Heater movies, the production quality has gone up. You've had um, the ability to add more animations that really help uh, people visualize what's going on. I've noticed that a lot of people who are – trying to get their heads wrapped around rocket mass heaters. It's, it takes something like that, the animations and the, and the cross-sectional diagrams and so forth for them to finally like get it in their, have their brain wrap around how this thing works. Have you ever wondered whether a particular book was really good or just so-so, and if you could trust the reviews online? When it comes to books related to permaculture, Permies has a large list of reviews for over 100 books. Perhaps you're considering a book for yourself or a friend, or you're just curious about what's out there. Stop by permies.com forward slash book and take a look at the book review grid and read some honest reviews, and hopefully you'll find the next book to add to your collection. So I, I I think the big thing I'm trying to say is is that we got two Kickstarters done this year, mm-hmm. and each one produced an amazing artifact. At the same time, uh, as if that wasn't enough, the Greenhouse movie has come out, and it is it it got to the point that it was done. Um, I mean, there was the building of the greenhouse that was completed, and then all of that video that was taken needed to be massaged into a movie. And uh, as part of it, there's also um, uh, I asked Josiah to uh, put up something where it was like uh, I think it's like twelve hours. Uh, like I think he put up like a twelve hour version of the build or something like that. This this very extended version uh featuring a lot more details. And I and I arranged it so that he has full ownership of it and then he sells it on permies and gets the proceeds. So um I I hope people will will buy that and support Josiah and and his his projects. But um uh and you've seen the you've seen the greenhouse movie? Yes. Yeah, because you're kind of in it for a little bit at the beginning, uh, during yeah. the design phase. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 
I think that the important thing is, and, and as part of this podcast, we, we've had the guy that was reviewing it and he gave us feedback, which it was excellent. Um, the thing is, it's just, I guess I'm just trying to say it's just been such a very, very busy year this year of getting so much, so much bigger content out there. Now, um, so the Garden Master course is coming up. And it's going to be immediately followed by a Rocket Mass Eater tour. And this is a product of where we ask people, like, how do we reach 100 million brains with Rocket Mass Eater stuff? And I think that there was, there was like three artifacts that came out of that. Um, especially in the space of like, what can I do? And if I can do it, anybody can do it. And so one of the three artifacts was for those people who have a Rocket Mass Eater, to kind of have an open house like once a year so people can see it in action because this is, this is something where you just don't believe it's real until you can see it and feel it. And especially if you've worked wood stoves before, if, if, if you've worked some really nice wood stoves or even some really crappy wood stoves, it is profound the difference and the way that it does it is so different and odd and and genius really hats off to yonto evans um and uh it's 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 profound the change that it can do in so many different ways and and your presentation on a carbon negative heater is is excellent. That was just, that was gold. Um, but we're going to the day after the garden master course. So the garden master course is a Monday through Friday thing, 40 hours. Um, the day after that on Saturday, we're going to do a tour here. And so, uh, um, and we just got that set up and just got that announcement. Just got out there. And, um, the the big thing is is that if anybody has ever been here before, they are welcome to come to this tour for free. And uh for anybody that has backed one of my past Kickstarters at a hundred dollars or more, they also get to attend for free. And for everybody else, I think we set it for fifty bucks, which is half the price of the normal price that we usually charge to come out here at all for the most minimal things. So we're 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 going to try to see if we can get uh, more people to have a visceral reaction to rocket mass heaters in action, to actually, you know, see them and feel them. And, and we're going to limit it to base camp, um, but, you know, we're still talking about more than a dozen contraptions. So that's, that's happening uh, I think January 7th is the day for that. And yeah. so we're getting people are starting to sign up, and we are very happy for the to give out the freebies where the freebies are going out. Um, now uh, you of course have experienced rocket mass heaters firsthand. You've got some. You've you've. Uh, I'm I'm sure you've participated in building several. I'm just not thinking oh, yeah. of any of the moment, but I know that you have arranged for many to be built. So you. Clearly have first-hand first first-hand experience. Yeah, oftentimes when I'm doing projects, I'm working at the project level. It is like doing the 
regenerative engineering for a large-scale project, and I'll specify a rocket mass heater and then engineer how it works into a building or into a context. And then oftentimes I don't, I don't get to, like, lead the build. Um, oftentimes that's, you know, there's so many parts of the build that are happening with different uh, artisans coming in um, that, uh, like, there's – we actually put a couple in the um, – the village, eco village down here for the indigenous people in central Alabama. And we got Erica to fly down and lead that build. Um, and uh, we put in, you know, the first two uh, eight inch uh, rocket mass heaters. Um, and those are in and functioning um, and uh, heating buildings down here in Alabama. So because, um, but we built those to full ASTM masonry standard, uh, masonry heater standards so that uh, they could be a demonstration of something that could potentially be um, uh, be um, you know um, how should I say it, permitted and supported by an, an insurance company right uh, i have I have been amazed uh, mud has been doing a lot and on the uh, the permitting and getting insured spaces yes and um and it sounds like uh the experience he's been having are very positive. Um yeah. the uh the, the the fire marshals love rocket mass heaters. Once they um, understand them, yes. Yeah, once they understand them. Um up until then, um if it burns wood they hate it because they've, you know, had to pull charred bodies out of burnt buildings because right. of chimney fires. And yeah. so um uh, but then, uh, and then insurance companies, I, I thought it was fascinating. Why? I mean, insurance companies, of course, their primary objective is, um, uh, the, the, the thing that they hate the most, the thing that they're most concerned about is going to be chimney fires. And so then when they learn about how we basically domesticate the chimney fire and we use that as that that creosote as fuel, then um then suddenly they're they're very, very keen on it. But in garages they don't like uh wood stoves. And their reasoning is compounded and and it's because I and I thought this was absolutely fascinating. People are tempted to store fuel cans in their garage or their shop, which is the same space where somebody might strike a match because they're about to light something. Now, of course, you know, the whole concept of being a smoker and going into your wood shop where the, because basically these fuel cans will off gas, even if, you know, and, and, Part of it is, is how good is the seal? And has this consumer, you know, put a good seal on or do they have a, you know, a sloppy seal either by accident, uh, there was a Gilligan involved or whatever. Who knows what it is? But basically it's like, you know, I, I would imagine that the problem would be identical if there was a smoker in, in the building, which is why the insurance rates are higher for smokers as well. Which, you know, I'm sure the tobacco industry has fought that <laughs> in many ways. But, um, uh, it is, it is delightful to hear about so many of these insurance companies and regulators, you know, embracing rocket mass eaters. Um, 
And, uh, um, I mean, basically it's kind of like, well, cause the other thing is like, let's say you have a garage and you have a natural gas heater with a pilot light, you know, and it's like, isn't your problem with the, the, the vapors coming off of the gasoline, uh, or other fuels about as bad? So, um, uh, anyway, it's, it just seems like uh the love of rocket mass heaters is um is coming a long long ways yeah. uh, and, and our, the the carbon negative mass heater presentation is basically some of the material that I'm using to help bring the conversation forward with architects and people who are in the green building and regenerative building space yeah. Yeah, at which then in turn influences building codes and insurance companies. Yeah. Which is, which is, so a lot of people, they just start right there. Oh, uh, building codes or oh, insurance company. And it's kind of like, um, my impression is, is that most places where you might want to build, um, don't have that problem. That problem's already been sorted out. That's not a problem. And it, and it seems like those barriers are, are crumbling quickly and, and, uh, acceptance is, is covering more and more of the map every year. So this, this as an FYI. Um, okay. Speaking of this kind of stuff, um, a month and a half ago or so, I wrote that thread about how do we, um, tell a hundred million people about rocket mass heaters because we got to get information into the brains of the people that are about to have a very cold winter in Europe and the cost of heating could be $20,000 per month. And, uh, it sounds like they've been saved. Um, you know, it'll just cost them. Um, uh, let me do some math here about pushing a hundred thousand dollars per home. Uh, and you might think I'm exaggerating. Uh, and if I, if I am, it might be because it's more like $80,000 per home, possibly. But what, apparently what happened, cause I, I remember there was a, there was a day, uh, a few weeks ago, I tried to say something at it, at Reddit to do an I am it, to reach people. And, uh, everything was fine for an hour. And then the corporate troll showed up and it's kind of like, wow, man, I got, I got destroyed by corporate trolls so fast. Um, I wonder, you know, what it is that they hate about it. Well, now we know. And, uh, um, so basically what's happening, cause it was, it was natural gas. The, the, the war made it so that, um, the pipeline, the natural gas pipeline from Russia to Europe, uh, has been shut off. And so people who heat their homes with natural gas are looking at like having to spend $20,000 a month for heat. And, um, because, you know, the natural gas supply is so low. Well, what has been done now is that apparently many, many tankers went from the United States over to Europe and they sold them natural gas to keep them, um, supplied through this winter. Uh, at a price tag of 10 times higher than they would have paid to Russia. Um, and, and then it's kind of like, okay, so 
they're going to pay this incredible the 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 people of Europe are going to pay this incredible rate. Well, the four color brochure says, "Oh no. No, no, no. The uh the government is going to cover the difference." And uh so what it means is, "Oh yeah, they're still going to pay it. It's just that they're going to pay it in with taxes instead of paying it uh, uh, directly for what they're consuming. So when we when we want to try to talk about, hey, use a rocket mass heater, the conversation will go like this. It's like, why should I use a rocket mass heater when I can heat my home with gas for so damn cheap? <laughs> but it's because it's 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 cheap due to subsidy. All right, I, I, that's political. I don't want to get into the political. The the, the key is is that. It seemed like rocket mass heaters was had the potential, had the possibility of getting a lot of traction in Europe because a lot of people were were trying to figure out what they're going to do so that they aren't paying $20,000 a month for heat. And uh they've they've been rescued in such a way that there's still no point for them to really learn about rocket mass heaters. Or at least most of them. It's the they're gonna. It's like ah, why bother? It's it's not that big of a deal. It's you know, um, I I do think that um, like for example in uh, we we came up with some data. I should I should have pulled it up for this, but it it is true. Heating your home with natural gas through a Montana winter is pretty damn cheap. It's something like six hundred dollars for the whole winter. And I gotta admit, you know, having, having it be only $600 and having it be, uh, a thermostat, you just, you don't have to chop any wood <laughs> or store it in a box or move it around or any of that. Um, that is pretty convenient. Of course, it doesn't have the biophilic element and you're, you've got the risk that that price could change at any time, but boy, it's hard to beat. Um, so the thing is, is that for a while there, I thought a lot of people would be very interested in rocket mass heaters in Europe. And now I think it's going to be more like normal levels of interest. Although I have heard that somehow that that subsidized natural gas um, isn't making it to all of Europe. There are still some people that are basically going to end up quite screwed and um they are freaking out and and already um there is uh greater interest in rocket mass heaters over there and so there is getting to be a big a bit of a shift this is there's so many systems level things emerging here you know it's like you can only make sense of this when you look at the entirety of the system i think you're kind of moving there um you know there's um what we've we've done is if you take a look at the system level cost of say something like natural gas, we have hidden the actual monetary cost from the end consumer through structural means of how we set up as you said subsidies and other kinds of monetary games. We've also of course hidden the environmental costs uh, in in various ways. And um, so a couple things pop up, yes. One is the end user cost is artificially low until it isn't. 
right? Mm-hmm. In, until for some reason or another, that's the the prices um, explode, and then either the government has to intervene with an additional tier of price hiding, or the price gets passed along to the end user. I think the other thing, of course, is the fallacy of previous investment. You have all this infrastructure that's been put in place in order to sustain this kind of system. All of the infrastructure to extract natural gas, pump it, pipeline it, distribute it, and use it. And um, that's a huge amount of monetary material and energy invested. And so the way most people perceive or think about an issue would be, well, if this means of heating becomes less viable because the cost is exploding, then they're less likely to think, well, is there systemically a whole different paradigm we could shift to that's better suited to the you know long-term um, costs and long-term environmental uh, degradation. Um, is there something we could shift to that's completely different? Instead, oftentimes it's like, how do we solve this problem, right? Because their brain is stuck on the idea of we heat with natural gas, and therefore it's, okay, how do we keep doing that? Um, you know, And that, that has to do with that whole way of thinking in which you assume that since you've invested and you have infrastructure in place, that the only plausible way forward is to maintain that infrastructure, even if it becomes increasingly less viable. I, I, I want to, I think that the, the, when I go out and I talk to groups about rocket mass heaters, I would say that, uh, I mean, there's always the thing about insurance. And there's always the thing about, uh, you know, um, uh, regulations about, about, you know, is it going to be in the building codes and things like that? But um, I would say the number one resistance to the entire idea um, is the thermostat connected to a mini split. And, uh, and, and it's like, I can, I want to be able to talk about how a mini split sucks, but much like how people cannot hear me talk about a rocket mass heater, they just they 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 can't hear it. it it's like the the idea, the the concept of it cannot form in their head, and therefore it's like I'm talking about little green men living on Mars. It's like it, it hell they'll even listen to that because it's comedy. Um. But it's, I don't know, it's, I'm trying to think of examples of perpetual motion machines, uh, you know, uh, running a car on water, uh, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, snake oil, uh, charlatan stuff, and it's like, anything I say about a rocket mass heater falls into that space. But I, I kind of feel like, and yet, here we are running them and stuff, but, but people, they can't hear it. And so, um, and I kind of feel like a great, one of the reasons why they can't hear it 
is because the mini split defense. And it's kind of like, wow, you, you have traded your dumpster fire for dumpster fire junior. And because it's less bad, it's less of a dumpster fire, then you're all done. And it's like, and you're going to ride that mini split into the destruction of the planet saying that you are helping to keep the planet from being destroyed. And it's like, that is so far from the truth. It's, I mean, basically, um, and then when you try to address the problems, the mini split, then the conversation immediately switches over to uh, an in-ground heat pump. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I thought you were talking about a mini split, which is not an in-ground heat pump. Oh, well, they're basically the same. And it's like, you got to fucking pick one and stick to it, dumbass. But so the, let's just let's you and I stick to the mini split. Bottom line. It uses uh, 30% less energy than uh, baseboard heat. And 30%, so so basically 70% dumpster fire. 70% of all the environmental disaster that goes on on the other end of that wire. It's it's still an abomination. And on top of that, um, just... There's an immense amount of embodied energy in the contraption itself, and the contraption itself has a limited lifespan, a rather limited, a frightening limited lifespan. Baseboard heaters will last, I'm going to guess a baseboard heater could probably last 50 years or better, but that mini split, you'll be doing pretty good if you can get it more than 10 years out of it. Okay, Mr. Booker, is there anything I've exaggerated on what I've just said? I don't think so, but I would want to point out something very specific. It's you, know, you are in Montana, and so your primary concern is with heat. Um, in the summertime, you get these wonderful diurnal swings where it's nice and cool at night, even if it's quite hot during the day <laughs> and a little bit of intelligent, you know, rigging will allow you to cool down a space at night and then let that ride over the following day. So it's only under extreme circumstances that you're thinking about cooling. Um, True. So we can also cool people very easily with just some mist. Yeah. You would so, just add a little water to the air, and everybody becomes 15 degrees cooler. Well, that also works because you are in a very dry environment. Exactly. Whereas what you're I'm, thinking of. <laughs> I'm in the southeastern United States. Right. Where our, you know, cooling in the summertime is actually a little bit, I mean, we still have to do a lot of heating in the winter, absolutely. But cooling in the summertime is huge because – we have very high humidity uh, at various times in the summer. So if you take and it's 100 degrees here and you try spraying people with water, now all they are is hot and wet, you know, hot and damp um, because the, the evaporative cooling is just not really firing, right? Right. 
Um, swamp coolers don't work down here because of that. Uh, the humidity is too high. So if you're in an area where you have very low humidity, then using the, the evaporative cooling strategy makes sense. Mm-hmm. So here we have the issue, uh, two separate issues, which is, yep, how do we provide heat in the winter? And then we have, how do we provide coolness in the summer in a way that also dehumidifies? Because if we don't, we also get mold and, you know, things of that nature uh, as, a, as an auxiliary problem. So here there's a whole different use for the mini split, which is trying to drive it as a uh, cooling and dehumidifying system in the, uh, the summertime. So I think to me, I always have to divide it into the two uses. Uh, one is since it's a heat bump, you can run it multiple ways. Uh, there is using it as a heat source and then there is using it for cooling and dehumidifying. So, um, I would agree with everything you were saying insofar as heat goes. Um, That's another thing about the heat discussion. I I find that in order to even have the discussion, I have to always start the discussion by saying, in Montana. Yeah, and because, I, I have to design all over the world, so I have to think about tropics and no, no. subtropics and everything. Yeah. Um, but I would point out something very specific even down here where I am living in the southeast, is that part of what's driving the whole discussion about uh, moving, instead of going to wood heat and let's go to, say, um, a mini split or whatever, is the idea of electrification, which is drive everything to electrification so that um, it's all run by electricity, the idea being that, over time, we can then drive away from fossil fuel inputs and towards renewables. Um, the challenge we have, like when I'm uh, working with and designing off-grid communities, is that uh, down here, a lot of the time, solar is much more practicable as a renewable energy source than, say, wind. And uh, because of our climate and certain circumstances. So what I get to is basically this. Um, you, in the summertime, if I have solar array, then at the moment I need cooling, the sun is oftentimes beating down on the solar panels, and we can run some sort of electrical cooling device if we need to, or and or dehumidifier pretty directly at the moment of maximum need for cooling is also the moment of maximum power production. But you come into the wintertime, and the situation is completely the reverse. The moment I need the most heating is the moment when it's been overcast and dreary and rainy for three or four days, and it's January, right? And so if you try to size renewable energy in the form of, say, a PV array and battery in order to handle a circumstance, that is, you're trying to figure out how to do this in a renewable way, not dependent upon fossil fuels for baseload, then your problem is at the exact moment 
that you have maximum load on your heat is the moment at which your solar is at its minimum. Therefore, my strategy has always been that if I have to use electrical means of cooling in the summertime, then we run the cooling as much as possible. We, we do that while the sun is shining. But in the winter, we will do passive solar when the sun is available. But in those moments when we need auxiliary heat because passive solar and good building envelope design is not enough, then you've got to have some energy storage. And storing it electrically in batteries is, boy, you try sizing that out. <laughs> right? Yeah. And exactly. Then the amount of resources and the amount of embodied pollution that goes into extracting and refining all those metals and doing all that, it's huge. Whereas what I was showing with the carbon negative mass heater approach was that by far the cleanest thing we can do from a, from an embodied energy, embodied pollution, embodied carbon, and operational um, energy, operational pollution, operational carbon, by far in all six of those categories, the best thing we can do when we do not have adequate real-time solar input for passive solar heating is to heat with a carbon-negative mass heater of which a rocket mass heater is our current best example when when put into a proper context. I I I now naturally I have about a hundred hours of stuff to say down this road, and um and and what I want to do is I I I want to niggle on a on a couple of quick details. One is is that. For so many things, if we're going to do off-grid or if we want to just take – we're like we have the potential to be on-grid and we want to go off-grid, uh, for for most situations, people need to go to to solar panels. And uh, even though micro-hydro is always a better solution, very few people have access to it. Yes. So um, – uh, this, this, sort of, and, and the bottom, and the thing is, is that you start thinking to yourself, like, uh, I'm gonna do solar panels, you know, screw those guys. And, uh, you have now taken on the need to learn this mountain of stuff to basically be your own power company. And, and for, and what I've discovered is, is that, uh, for every person that can take it on and get it done, there are 50 people who say they're willing to take it on and get it done, and they won't. They they might buy the materials, they might start to connect them up, they might they they might be willing to to but the bottom line is they just don't wanna. They get sick of it. They hate it. They end up hating solar. Because there's all kinds of little jobs and things you got to do and equipment to futz with and what the power went out again. Now what? And, and part of what you said is clouds. <laughs> and it's kind of like, yeah, there's some of that, but there's also all kinds of others. Most people 
don't want to fuck with it. And so it's like it, that's a that's a thing. That's a bizarre thing. But the but the real thing I want to point out is is like if you're gonna be off grid, if you're gonna disconnect yourself, you're gonna need, as you said, a lot of batteries and all that that implies. And I'm thinking of like mining, you know, different kinds of some some there's there's a bunch of environmental impact. And those batteries, it's, it's pretty significant. Oh yeah. But even more for those solar panels. Woo! Man, to get those solar panels to exist. Ah, there's a lot of environmental impact there. Now granted, it's like, it's better than some of the other stuff that's, that like coal, it's still better than coal. Absolutely true. Better than coal. Which here in Montana, still half of our power comes from coal. So, yeah. well, and then and I, of course I, you're poking me now. So I got I got to point out that every my first step in everything I do that has solar PV into it is to design the rest of the system to use ninety percent less electricity. That that is that is the way. That is the way, and and it's kind of like uh, uh, and it's not that bad. It's not that hard. No. And, and, um, uh, I, I do think that it, it, it forces you in a way to do the things that you say your standards are, to say that your values are. Yep. I mean, you, you are embracing that. When it comes to doing your laundry, you're going to line dry now. <laughs> this podcast is continued in part two. Hey, this is T. Blankenship. Have you seen the new video of Wheaton Labs? It is permaculture awesomeness with all new and improved things like more rocket mass heaters, easy bake coffin, Willy Wonka, rocket cooktop 2.0, and the truly passive greenhouse. To see more, go to permies.com slash tour. Again, that is permies.com slash tour.